Uh, so, if you guys don't know, if you're newer, if this is one of your first times here, we started the book of Revelation four weeks ago. I said it before, I'll say it again, we've gotten too cocky as a church, okay? Like, when you're going to say, hey, we're going to go through the book of Revelation, you've just gotten too confident. And so, we are going through the book of Revelation, we're going to go through the book of Re- Revelation all the way up until the Advent season, where we'll, then we'll start our Advent series. And here's what I've been saying every week of this series so far, is I've been saying, hey, go back and listen to that intro sermon, okay? I just want us all to get on the same page when it comes to the book of Revelation. A lot of us have been taught, taught lots of weird things about the book of Revelation, and so I really spent a lot of time, too much time, some might say, in the intro sermon, really trying to set us up well to say, what is this book, and what is this book trying to do? And so we kind of go in-depth into those two ideas. What is the book of Revelation, and what is it trying to do, okay? So go back. If you haven't listened to that, it will be immensely helpful, okay? But I am going to try to do a bit of review of that intro sermon every week. Maybe I won't do it every week. We'll see how it goes. There's lots of images in Revelation that take a lot of time, so I might not be able to do an in-depth review every week. But I want to do a little bit of review before we hop into the, the passages that we're in today. And So here's the bit of a review. First bit of review. We learned what the book of Revelation is trying to do. We found out what the book of Revelation is trying to do. It is trying to disciple Christians or train Christians to be discerning, dissident, worshiping witnesses. Okay, that's what the book of Revelation is trying to, trying to do. It's trying to train Christians to be discerning of their world and where Babylon has come in and kind of animated them as Christians and as churches. It's trying to disciple them to be dissident at times in opposition to the culture they live in, the anti-lamb culture that they live in, to w- live like the way of the lamb. It wants to disciple them into worshipers of the lamb and only the lamb. Uh, And and then it's also trying to disciple us into being witnesses of Jesus, that we would live lives that point to Jesus, but we would also speak words that point to Jesus. These are, the, I think, the four things that Revelation is trying to do. It's trying to disciple Christians into discerning, dissident, worshiping witnesses, okay? So the other thing we learned in the intro sermon, we learned... Revelation actually has three genres that it itself claims to be. So if you don't know about genres of scripture, every book of the Bible has one genre or even multiple genres at times, and it helps immensely to understand what genre that book is, or you're not going to understand the book very well. You might read things in the wrong way. And so we learned that Revelation itself claims to be three genres. Okay, very quickly, the first genre it claims to be is apocalypse. That's the word revelation. And apocalypse has this, in the Greek, that's what revelation was translated from, apocalypse has this idea of revealing, of unveiling. But the genre of apocalypse in the first century, it would use images and symbols and numbers to point out things going on in their empire that weren't literally going on, but they were really going on. 
So a lot of times the symbols are used to say this literally points to this thing, and it actually goes, no, this symbolically, this metaphorically, this apocalyptically points to what is really going on in the world, right? Like, so when we read about a dragon and you never see a dragon ever, that's why, okay? It's a symbol for something else, okay? So the second genre we learned that Revelation is, is it is literary prophecy, literary prophecy, okay? Literary prophecy means words and visions from God to someone to share with his people and sometimes even others, so words and visions from God to someone to share with the church, with the family of God. Prophetic words, literary prophetic words, often are words of challenge or words of comfort. Usually they're mixed together. Go read all the old prophets in the Old Testament. You'll find there are words of challenge. There are words of comfort. So literary prophecy in the Bible is not a genre that is used to predict history. However, it is used to give us hope that God is in control of all of history until he, until he returns, okay? So that's literary prophecy. And then we also found out that the book of Revelation is actually a letter. It's a letter that went to seven churches, seven cities worth of churches, actually. So whole cities worth of Christians got this as a letter. Why is that important? Because that means the book meant things to those first century Christians. They didn't read it and go, better hold on to this until America gets here. Like, they, that's not how they read it. They read it and said, oh, I know what that means. That means this. That means that. And so sometimes uh, Revelation is actually hard for us to interpret because those first century symbols and images and things, they knew what they meant, but we don't have a good catalog of what all these various symbols meant. And so we learned that Revelation is actually a letter, which means it meant real things to first century people, not just to people at the very end of time, okay? So that's the book of Revelation. Quick review. Quickish review. And again, that's only important to me because I've read all the Left Behind books. And so, just really, I, and I've just seen how often we get really weird with the book of Revelation. And so, it is helpful for us to know what it itself claims to be, all right, as God's word. So, uh, can I, I'm going to tell you guys, I'm going to tell you guys something gross about me. I was going to say, can I tell you, but you don't have a choice. This is a monologue. And so... I'm going to uh, tell you something gross about me, and maybe I shouldn't use the word gross because I, I think sometimes I just don't have enough grace for myself, and really, we as Christians, Jesus has lavished so much grace on us. I just want to make that clear, but, but there are just sometimes things about myself that make me cringe a little bit about myself. Uh, here, I'll explain what makes me cringe. So I, there's, there's been times in my life where there's people in my life who maybe I, myself, would say in my heart, I, you seem a little bit more needy than the average human. And I would notice that with some of these needy people in my life, this thing happens where like, almost like I can sense that they want like, encouragement and affirmation from me, okay? And then this is the gross thing my heart does. It goes, not going to give it. <laughs> nope. Like, I, like there's something in me that senses they want encouragement. I'm like, nope, because you want it, 
no way. Like all of a sudden, like I forget the gospel, like I forget grace, I forget Jesus. And I'm like, no, you've got to earn my encouragement, friend. Like, and it's this, it's this gross thing about me. The Holy Spirit and my therapist are helping me to understand why it's there. But, but I say it's this gross thing about me and this cringy thing about me because this is why encouragement, it's kind of an, a, a human emotional need. Like it is, like to be encouraged, to have people in your corner, have people that kind of go like, hey, like you're doing all right as a human. Like, hey, here's where you're doing well. Like this is, this is somewhat of a human emotional need. And I hate that there's this part of me that when someone wants that from me, my heart goes, nope, you gotta earn it. Like you gotta, you gotta deserve it if I'm gonna give you that encouragement. And this section that we're in, in Revelation, it's these uh, specific addresses get, being given to these seven churches. And what last week we talked about how there's all these challenges in these specific addresses. But in these specific addresses, there's also all these encouragements. Not all the churches get encouragements, but most of the churches get some sort of encouragement. And then further, there's even promises, promises of what God will do that should give people hope. And I think sometimes as pastors, when I've heard Revelation chapters 2 and 3 get preached, it's very easy for pastors to just focus on the challenges. And it's harder for pastors to focus on the encouragements, on the comforts, and all that stuff. And so because that's like a cringy thing about me, I'm like, you know what? We're spending a whole week just on the encouragements that we see in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And it's kind of funny. I don't, it's funny when you talk to, I think, Christians about being encouraging of one another, which scripture commands a few times, by the way. And then when you talk about how God wants to encourage us, and it's like all throughout scripture, but part of us are like, no, I can't, no, I'm just a worm. Like, and it's like, no, God wants to encourage you in your walk. God wants you to know he's like cheering you on in certain ways. And that's a good thing. And a part of that is because our souls need it, especially in this sinful, broken world and because of our sinful, broken souls. And so, uh, so last week we looked at the specific challenges. This week we're going to look at the, the encouragements, the promises that we see in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Okay, And then here's what we also have to remember. This is God's word. So even though these are the encouragements and promises given to those seven churches in specific ways... It's God's word, so it's for all of God's people in all times and all places as well. So we can hear these things and be encouraged ourselves. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the encouragements and promises that God gives to these seven different churches in these addresses. And so the first half of the sermon, we're just going to focus on, we're going to just look at the various encouragements that God gives to these churches, and then we're going to hear them for ourselves. Okay, And then the second half of the sermon, we're going to look at these specific promises that God makes to every church. God actually does give a specific promise to every single church. And every single promise is astounding and beautiful and kind of mind-blowing. And so first half of the sermon, encouragements. Second half of the sermon, the specific promises that God gives. I'm going to take a drink. All right. 
I want to start by reading. There's two churches. So there's seven churches that get these addresses. There's two churches that actually didn't get any correction. So all that correction, all that challenge that we talked about last week, there was two churches that didn't get any of it. They were killing it. I hope to be like those churches. But then I read, especially about Smyrna, I'm like, well, maybe I don't want to be like that because they were dealing with persecution. And so let's read just to give us a flavor of what these encouragements sound like. I'm going to read to the church in Smyrna, and then we're also going to read to Philadelphia, who's the other church that didn't get any corrections. So chapter 2, verse 8, words will be on the screen, says this. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, let's turn into chapter 3, verse 7, and see this message to the church in Philadelphia. Verse 7 says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from, that, from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. So that gives a good little flavor of what these encouragements sound like. I'm going to suggest this book again. I suggested it last week. N.T. Wright has a book, Revelation for Everyone. He does a great job briefly and easily going kind of a little bit in depth into these seven addresses. And so if you're just looking for a quick read on these seven addresses, N.T. Wright's book, Revelation for Everyone, really good. So here, let's start by talking about these encouragements. So not all the churches get encouragements, but most of the churches get encouragements in these addresses to these seven uh, uh, churches. And so let me sum up, I'm gonna sum up quickly kind of how I would say, here's the big summary, the different ways that God is giving encouragement to these different churches. He encourages them about their endurance. He encourages them about their works. He encourages them about their love. He encourages them about their faith. He encourages them about their service or serving of one another. And he encourages them about their integrity. Those, I think those, however many words, are all a good summary of what God's encouragements all encompass when he's encouraging these different churches. 
So first, let's talk about one of them. Jesus, he makes a note often in these addresses about the church's endurance, their endurance. He's like, man, you guys are enduring. So in the endurance for the first century Christian, it was the ability to keep going even when the culture all around them pressured them to not be Christians. Some of it was legal pressure. Some of it was social pressure. It probably depended on the region that you were in, how, how bad it was for Christians to stay Christians. And so when God is saying, I see your endurance, he's saying, I see that. I see that you keep going. You keep going no matter how much pressure you're feeling from the culture around you. And flat out, some of them, no matter how much persecution you're feeling from the culture around you. And so here's what I want to do. I want to say how I see you guys have a similar endurance. None of us are pressured, I think, in quite, in quite as an, an intense way. None of us are persecuted that I know of. And, but I still see an endurance in the saints in this room, in the believers, in those of us that follow Jesus. I see an endurance in you. One of the things that people, when they move to Flagstaff, they start coming to our church, we hang out and get lunch. Almost always, one of the first things I hear from Christians when they move to Flagstaff is they know how, how much harder their faith feels to live out and to cling to. Something about being here in Flagstaff, maybe it's because I think only 10% or less of the population goes to church at all. I don't know what it is, but there are different things that when people move here, they go, man, my faith feels harder to live out here. It's harder to cling to Jesus. And here's what I want to say to all of you here in this room, and yet here you are, enduring. You keep going. You're chasing after Jesus. Stephanie, you're chasing after Jesus. You're clinging to him. Like you keep going. You guys are enduring. All right, you, that, that, that is a beautiful thing to God. It's a beautiful thing to me as your pastor. And so I just want you to know I see it in you. I'm thankful for that. In part, that's why I have a job. So thanks, you know, thank you for that. But that's, you know, in part, that's why I get to see Jesus in this city. It's because of you guys. I also think of your guys' endurance when it just comes to, like, continuously living out love continuously living out, living like Jesus in this world. Like, I, I, I see so many of you, you keep living out these works of love, you keep enduring. I don't know, if you've ever stepped into loving the vulnerable in this world, if you've, which, by the way, we actually all are vulnerable. So if you've ever stepped into loving anybody in this world, it takes endurance, there's a million different reasons why it takes endurance. It can be discouraging. It can be tiring. It can be difficult. Our own sinfulness would rather creep up and make us selfish. Like there's all kinds of ways why enduring in love is so difficult. And yet I watch you guys and you endure in love. You endure in love. You keep going. I think about many of the families in our church who, have, who are part of the, the foster care and adoption system here in this city and are, are pressing into that. They are enduring. They are enduring that because of how God has loved them, how God has adopted them, they know that they can press into that, that they can keep loving. You guys are enduring. I'm proud of you guys. 
I'm looking at you specifically. <laughs> like, you guys are enduring. It takes endurance to do that. God sees that, and he, he's pleased. Like, that, I, that's why I think he encourages in this letter. Like, that brings joy to him, and he wants to encourage you and say, keep going. Keep doing this. Keep pressing in. And so I think endurance, in the Christian faith, it's a little bit of an underrated virtue or whatever you want to call it. It's a little bit underrated, but you see it all throughout the New Testament. You see it all throughout these encouragements. It's, it's good for us as Christians to endure because this is going to look like a small sliver of the time we spend on this earth when Jesus returns. We can endure because he is bringing a hope that's far, far more lasting than what we're going through now, okay? All right, something, some other ways that he endured, or some other ways he encouraged the first century churches is he points out that they had notable love, notable works, and, and service of, of one another and, and their, their neighbor. So their love, their works, their service of one another, this pleases God. He wants to point it out. He's like, man, you are living like me in the world. You understand how I've loved you, so now you are loving the world. The gospel, to be clear, is not we obey, then we get God. We obey, then God loves us. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God loves us, then we obey. Like, because God has loved us, his love fuels us to obey him. And so by living out acts of love, works, service for one another and for your neighbor and for those in this city, you are living out the result of a gospel-formed life. If you have a gospel-formed life, you're going to live out love. And God, in Revelation, wants to say, hey, I see that. That is awesome. That is great. And so if I can encourage you guys again, you guys in this city, you are known for your works and your acts of love. When other people talk to me about our church, about you guys, they don't go, man, what an incredible preacher. They say, they say, those are all just jokes, okay, guys? Um, just so you know. <laughs> Maybe there's some narcissism there, but they're, they're mostly jokes. And so uh, what they notice about you guys is how you press into loving in this city, how you press into loving each other, how you press into loving this city. Like you are known in the city for loving people. Here's, here's something that happened one time in our church, only one time that I know of, but things like this have happened over the years. One time, I'm going to be a little bit vague so that they wouldn't feel outed, but a family was suggested that they go to our church, and they were suggested by someone at the guidance center. I don't know who it was at the guidance center, but whatever happened, this person that heard from someone at the guidance center, the guidance center was convinced that somebody with, some, uh, with special needs would be loved for, at our church. Not just that, would be part of the community of our church. That was kind of like the specific suggestion, like, hey, I think this church might be the one where you'll be able to actually be part of the community of the church if you go, even though there's different special needs going on. That happened. That's because you guys are living out works of love. You guys are living out works of service. And then when someone comes into our church that maybe typical society would have a hard time with, you go, I guess we're brothers and sisters now. That's, that's amazing to me. 
The city knows your works. The city knows your works. I think what's funny is the churches in town, they're often a little bit perplexed about us. Don't know if you guys know that. They're a little bit perplexed by us, and I could just tell from talking to different people that, that go to uh, different churches, and kind of it's like this. It's like, wow, you guys really have a high view of Scripture. You think it's God's word and authoritative for your life, and you really care about doing works and service and love in the city. And they're like, those things don't go together. And I go, actually, uh, let me show you the whole Bible. Like, they'd go, they'd go together. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't say that. Uh, <laughs> I go, oh, thank, thank you, thank you. Uh, uh, just keep that up, guys. I am so proud to be your pastor because I, that's what you guys are known for. You're known for that because you're doing it. It's not because we're trying to make ourselves known for it. We're no, you guys are known for it because you're doing it. Okay? Uh, another encouragement that the first century church got was for their faith and for their integrity. They, they clung to Jesus even when it didn't make sense to. There was a purity to their faith too, like where they really were trying to follow Jesus correctly and well and have integrity doing that. You guys do that all the time, I think. I think last week, let's take last week as a sign of your faithfulness. Here's why last week was a sign of your faithfulness. I went hard yet last week, okay? Like I, I was looking at these challenges in chapters 2 and 3, and I said, here's how they would sound to us if we were going to listen to them. And I was just, you know, I was a little bit bracing myself for what I could hear. And what I heard from pretty much everybody was, man, what a good word. That takes faithfulness. It takes integrity for you to go, I can listen to a difficult word from Jesus and be encouraged by it. I don't know if I can. Like, I'm reading this stuff, and I'm like, I, I don't know. But you guys, at the very least, that's how you live. Like, that's how you do You hear a hard word, and you go, there's something good in that hard word for us. Because it comes from the author of all good, the, the, the center of all goodness, God himself. And so I, th I, I just think that is a sign of your faithfulness, your integrity. Uh, another thing, this is the way that you guys stand for Jesus' name. The way that many of you do it is by not being okay with the status quo of American evangelicalism. Many of you are not okay with that. You don't want a faith that looks like the status quo of Amer American evangelicalism. That means that you've got faith, you've got integrity. It's much easier always to go with the status quo. But you guys want to go where Jesus is leading you. Faith, integrity. I also think you guys just treat me way better than I deserve to be treated. Right? After I give a sermon like last week, I, I, maybe I even deserve to be treated a little bit worse. But you guys treat me well. You guys in general just treat me well. I honestly mean that. Like the way that you guys treat me as a pastor is far better than in previous years when I was pastoring or other pastors when I talked to them. You treat me better than I deserve to be treated. I think that takes faithfulness, takes integrity. And so be encouraged. Church, here's what I want you to say. See the encouragements that God is giving the first century church and be encouraged where you can be encouraged in those same ways. I see a lot of, if not all of those same things in you guys. That's why I can keep doing this. That's why I can keep pastoring, is because I'm encouraged by you guys. The Lord is encouraged by you as well. I really think that.
Okay, so those are the encouragements. Second part of the sermon, let's look at these promises. There's these seven promises. He gives a promise per church, okay? He gives a promise per church. Remember, these are just for artistic effect. It's not like, hey, Ephesus, this is what you get, but then Smyrna, this is what you get. It's really just kind of going, anyone who continues following Jesus gets these things, okay? And so every single church gets a promise, and he talks about these promises in, these, in this conquering language, he says, to the one who conquers, here's what I will give you. So to help translate that word conquer, conquer for the Christian was keep living, keep following Jesus until you die. Like that was conquering for the Christian, is to keep faithfully following the lamb until he returns. That, 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 that's conquering. It, honestly, I think the word conquering is getting used there because Rome was proud of all of their conquering. And Jesus says, hey, you guys conquer too, but it doesn't look like they're conquering at all. It doesn't look like they're conquering at all, but it's even more difficult to keep following Jesus all the way until I return or until you die and I bring you home. And so there's these beautiful promises to those that conquer. And so here's, I, I, could, I could divide the promises up into three different sorts of promises. So that's how we'll divide them up. There are promises of eternal life. There are promises of working with God. And there are promises of living with God and intimacy with God. Okay? Those are the, the three sorts of promises if you divide up all these seven. Let's, let's first zoom in on promises of eternal life. Uh, Ephesians 2, 7b, the second half says this, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To Smyrna in 2.11, he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To Sardis, he says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Sometimes, the, the, the Christian message or the gospel itself, it gets reduced to this idea. It gets reduced to this idea. You're going to die, but God is going to make it so you can live forever. I want to be clear. The gospel is so much more than that. The, the gospel is a far bigger message than that, a far more beautiful message than that. There, there are depths to the gospel. The gospel is bigger than that. But here's what I'm going to say. It's okay to be excited as Christians about the fact that God is the one who's going to make it so we can live forever. Like God's going to take death away. God's going to take death away from us. The, the, the three of these churches, they all got promises related to living forever with God or not being separated from God. Like these are the sort of promises that they got. And again, these promises are universal. It's to anyone that keeps following Jesus there until they die. To any who conquers. So one of the amazing things we get because of Jesus' work in the world is we get to live forever one day. Like we're gonna, we get the resurrection. We get eternal life. We're gonna get to live forever. We're gonna have bodies of life, not bodies of death and decay. That's gonna be nice. Right? I'm in this weird stage of my life where my body is starting to decay, right? Because I'm getting a little bit, I'm not the young whippersnapper I once was, and I still have acne. I don't know, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know what to do with that in the mirror, right? But <laughs> one day that won't be anymore. 
or acne will be beautiful. I don't know. I don't know how it will work, but one day that won't, that won't happen anymore. We are going to get to live eternally on this earth. Here's what I think. I actually think we're going to get to live eternally in the universe. Okay, this is getting weird, but I think the universe is kind of eternal because I think we're going to be exploring it for eternity with God. Maybe that's weird, whatever, but I think that's why we all like Star Trek and stuff. Like, okay, this is the nerd. That's not the Bible. That's Anthony, okay? But for sure, we get to live eternally with God here on this earth without sin, without death, without decay. Part of the mission of Jesus in this world is he's going to make it so we can live forever. Are you someone trying to escape death? Are you someone looking for the fountain of youth? No, no, nobody does that anymore. Are you someone who's constantly looking in the mirror trying to make yourself look younger? That is a hunger for the eternity that only God can give you. Thank you. That was a good, uh. <laughs> this has happened a lot in this series. I'm, li- I'm liking it. All right, so Jesus is the one that can help you in your quest to escape death. Only Jesus, all right? All right, let's look at another one of these promises. I, I summed this promise up as we get to work with God, but I'm going to be honest. It's a little bit confusing. So Thyatira 2, 26 through 28, this is what it said. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. So those verses, God is using to speak to these first century people who are ruled by Rome. And Rome just does whatever they want, and they rule, and they're powerful. So one, God is saying, I'm more powerful than them. And then he's saying, in the resurrection, in some way, in some way, you're going to rule with me. You're going to work with me. I, I, we, I don't, don't get weird about the analogy because he also says, like, I'm going to give you the morning star. Like, Venus, I think that is? I, I don't know what that means, right? Like, don't get weird with it. He's just trying to say, hey, when this is all said and done, it's not going to be the same. You're going to be with me. We're going to be working together. You're going to share in my power. Like, that does seem to be what God is saying. You're going to share in my power in some way. Share in my rule. Don't get weird with it. But I think we're going to work with God in some way. I think what's funny is sometimes living with God eternally gets kind of posed as this like, oh, we're just going to be floating in the clouds or like just doing you know, just playing every video game we never got to play or whatever the thing is. But, like, God has work for us, like good work to do. Like, we were made to work and start. We're going to have sinless work, work without sin. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be in a spaceship, but you guys will be doing, I don't know what you guys will be doing, but (laughs) this is going to be weird. I just, (laughs) I'm just joking around, okay? But I still do think we will explore the universe. And so... Oh, man. No way to under, under, like, undermine your own sermon by keep referencing spaceships. And so <laughs> something, something's going to happen in the resurrection where we get to be with God in a way where we work with him, share and work with him, sharing his power. That's what he's trying to say. Okay. Now I want to get to the promises. These are my favorite promises. There's the promises of living with God and intimacy with God. I, I group those together. Living with God and intimacy with God. To Pergamum in 2.17, he says, 
To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To Philadelphia in 3.12, he says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And then to Laodicea in 321, he says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Guys, this is the real good news. This is the real gift that we get. Living forever, all that stuff pales in comparison to the fact that we're going to get to live with God that we're going to get intimacy with God. The first image, symbol, metaphor, is this image of a name on a white stone. No one can quite figure it out. The scholars don't know what this is. It might have referenced some kind of thing that happened back then, especially around go, like, uh, honoring the rich in different ways. Uh, we're not sure. But God, what he is communicating is this. I've got a name on a stone for you that's shared only between me and you. Intimacy. God has a name for you that's just for you and just for him. It is that special that intimacy that he's offering in that, with that whole stone symbol. Then the next promise we looked at, he says, you're going to be so vital to the fact that God restored all things. You're going to be so vital that the metaphor that God uses is you are going to be built as part of the infrastructure of it. Right? He says you're going to be a pillar in the restoration. Remember, you're not going to be a literal pillar, like frozen there. What he is trying to say is you are going to be part of the infrastructure of the new creation. You're going to be integral to it. In that day, we have all kinds of decorative pillars now. In that day, pillars really held things up. You don't take a pillar down or things are going to fall down. So he's saying, there is no way I'm going to take you out of the new creation. You're going to be so integral to it, you're a pillar in my new creation. He's saying, no one in their right mind would remove a pillar. I will not remove you from my presence. And then this is really wild to me. He says to Laodicea, he says to Laodicea, hey, you, you're going to get to sit on the throne with me and my dad. Remember Laodicea last week, if you came? God has no encouragement for Laodicea. He's got a lot of heavy things to say to Laodicea. But the promise that he gives to even Laodicea is you can sit on the throne. You can sit on the throne with me and dad. In Revelation, we're going to learn about this next week. The throne is a big deal. The throne is a huge image that God uses in all sorts of ways in the book of Revelation. It is a big deal. The image of the throne is a big deal. The fact that God and his son sit on the throne is a big deal. And the spirits or spirit, spirits in the book, we'll talk about that later. Spirit is right before the throne. Like this is a big deal and a big part of the imagery of Revelation. The throne is a big deal. You're a bigger deal to God. 
You're a bigger deal to God than his own throne. He's, come on, sit up here with me. Like, I, like me, me, I get to sit on the throne with God one day. That's the sort of intimacy, that's the sort of love, that's what living with God will be like. We're going to sit on the throne with him. That is absolutely wild. One day, all of our longings for intimacy, all of them, are going to be met with the intimacy that only God can give. We are going to get to live with him, and it's going to be so special beyond our wildest imagination. That's what the imagery is trying to do here. It's trying to go, imagine this scene. Imagine how wild that would be. That's how wild your intimacy with God is going to be. When it's hard to per persevere and continue to follow Jesus and be faithful, know that this intimacy is what Jesus has secured for us. This living with God himself is what Jesus has secured for us. Every time you feel lonely, let your loneliness remind you that you're lonely because you really want intimacy from God. Let it go, okay, I'm lonely right now because I was made to never be lonely in the presence of God. Let, let that happen. There are so many good promises that the book of Revelation makes in, in these addresses. Every single church gets a promise. I love that. Here's one thing about the book of Revelation I've noticed reading it now a bunch over the last few months. I never noticed this about the book of Revelation before. The book of Revelation is unabashed, unabashedly evangelistic. Here's what I mean. It is unabashedly saying, believe in Jesus. It's unabashedly saying, God is the best. God is the best. He has the best. He is the best. He gives the best. He wants the best for you. He has all of it. He wants to give it to you. And it's unabashedly saying, because that's true about God, believe in him. Believe in the lamb named Jesus. Believe that that lamb's blood is powerful enough to do these sorts of things. Believe that the lamb's resurrection is powerful enough to give you this sort of life one day. It's just unabashedly saying he's the best. He's better than anything you found in this world. He's the best. In fact, the book seems to say the powers of this world are deluding you into thinking things here are better than him. Believe in Jesus because he's the best and he's got the best and he wants to give you the best. He is where life is found. So church, be encouraged. Believe it or not, the God of the book of Revelation wants to encourage you. He wants to, with his promises, with his encouragements, with hope, with comfort. So let those promises fuel us to faithfulness to the Lamb. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. You give good things. You are good. We get to be with you. God, there's so much beautiful in these addresses that often gets overlooked. Let us see the hope of those things, the comfort of those things. Let us revel in those things. God, obviously we want to be fueled by you and the gospel and your spirit more than anything else, but God, I think your spirit shows us these things to be fueled and to persevere as well. So I pray that these different images, these different promises, these different encouragements 
fuel us this morning. Help us to persevere as Christians. God, we love you. We need you. We're so thankful for you. Father, be with us this morning or help us to see that you are with us this morning. Amen.